This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Hey, Life Church, Pastor Rich here, and so glad that you're joining us online again. As you can see, we're still online. That's 10 weeks going, but we're so thankful to you. You have been incredibly generous, and you know, to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things about a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is that they're generous, and you have been generous. Thank you so much for your giving. Your tithes, your offerings, your giving to Kingdom Builders is still helping us change the world, and so I encourage you to continue doing that. You can go on to lifechurchnow.org forward slash give. And uh, there you can give. If you've not been tithing, I encourage you to start tithing. If you have been tithing, thank you. Thank you so much for your generosity. Now, today we're going to just have a little bit of a one-off service, uh, you know, kind of related to everything that's happening. You know, some years in the life of a nation are better than others. 52 years ago in 1968 was not a good year for America. In 1968, in January of 1968, the USS Pueblo, a Navy ship, intelligence gathering ship, was captured by the North Koreans. That same year, on January 30th, uh, a significant change in the Vietnam War happened. The Tet Offensive began, and that really basically uh, changed the tide of the war for the United States. On April 4th of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Three weeks later, students at Columbia University um, started a, a demonstration. And this demonstration reverber- reverberated around the world and it changed the very foundation of a lot of things. In s- six weeks after that, Robert Kennedy, Jr., Robert Kennedy was assassinated in a hotel. Two months after Robert Kennedy's assassination, there was riots that broke out in the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Seven weeks later, at the Mexico City Olympics, two African-American U.S. athletes, they had just won medals. They stood on the podium, and during the national anthem, they raised their fists in the sky. The people were Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They stood there in defiance to everything that was going on when it, as, it, as it pertained to race. It seems like the only positive thing that happened that year was on December 24th when Jim Lovell and and Apollo 8 had circled the moon 10 different times as they were coming out of the dark side of the moon. He radioed into Houston. He said, Houston, be informed that there is a Santa Claus. Now, this is the stuff that we were hearing. I was a little kid then, then, so I didn't really know about all that stuff, but this is the stuff that we were hearing on the media. This is what was being fed to the news. What was unnoticed that year was on February 19th in a public television studio in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, not Tennessee. There's no, maybe there's a Pittsburgh, Tennessee, but this is Pennsylvania. A 40-year-old Presbyterian minister by the name of Fred McFeedy Rogers walked on stage, took off his coat, put on a sweater, sat down, changed his shoes. This was a genius of a man. He started this program called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was aimed at preschoolers. He created sets. He wrote songs. And this program ran for 33 years. In this program, he brought little people onto the set. And on the set, they had a real world and they had a make-believe world. But there was one value for both of those worlds. And it was the value of of every human person. And he would talk about that value in a little song that he would sing, saying, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? There was an episode in 1969 
when Mr. Rogers was cooling his feet in this, in this little kid's pool, when Officer Clemens, an African-American man, showed up. And Mr. Rogers looked at him and said, hey, uh, Officer Clemens, why don't you sit with me and why don't you cool your feet? And so they both sat in there, they took their shoes off, and they were cooling their feet in this, in this little kid's pool. Now keep in mind, this was 1969 at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. A time when places, there were many places in the, in the United States where, where whites and blacks could not swim together. And yet, Fred Rogers was defiantly going against something that was deep in his spirit. He knew that there was value for every human person. He was proclaiming, won't you be my neighbor? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has something to say about being a neighbor. In fact, the title of this story has been adopted into the mainstream language of our culture. We use the word Good Samaritan all the time. It's just, I mean, whether you're in church or out of church, we understand what Good Samaritan means, right? Jesus in this story, he's illustrating how we are supposed to act in a world that's divided and broken. Now, the context of this story is, is really, really important. You've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, but the context is really important because it's the context that is the reason why Jesus even tells a story of the Good Samaritan. It's a context that makes the story incredibly rich and important for us to understand. The backstory is that there's this group of people, these religious lawyers that are following Jesus around. They're trying to trap him in his words. They've heard rumors that Jesus might be the Messiah and that, and that you know, people are worshiping him or adoring him, they're following him, and this really bothers them. And so they... Some of them very honestly believed that he was not the Messiah and they just wanted to, 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 to shut him up. But others were, had this evil intent and they were just out there to trap him in his words. So these lawyers are following him around. They're taking copious notes of everything he says, trying to see if he will say something and trip up on what he's saying so that, so that they could then say, look, look what he said and then discredit him for what he had just said. So, we're going to do is we're going to look at the backstory, and then we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan. And what we're going to do as we're doing this is we're going to put on a new set of lens so we can understand how Jesus sees our neighbor. And maybe we too can see our neighbor that way. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it starts off this way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now here it tells us exactly how this story got started. There was this lawyer who, who in the crowd raised his hand and he asks Jesus a question with the explicit purpose of testing him, trying to trap him in his words. And here's the question, teacher, teacher he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a very valid question. Many people think about this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be good with God? In fact, you're listening right now. You might be thinking exactly that way. How can I be good with God? How can I inherit eternal life? Now, a good trial lawyer would never ask a question that they didn't already know the answer to. And this lawyer from very young knew the answer. He had gone to Jewish Sunday school where he had learned the, the formula of what it looks like to be good with God to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus turns the question back on him and he asks a question, verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? Okay, you're a lawyer. You're an expert of the law. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? In other words, what's your interpretation of the law? And so this lawyer responds with a combination of two verses out of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, and Leviticus 19. 
and probably thinking that Jesus wanted to hear it this way. This is what he says in verse 27. He answered, this lawyer answers, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5. That's in the law. And that's the Shema. That's the, that's the confession of faith for the Jewish people. This is what they believe is the way to, to inherit eternal life. But then he adds Leviticus 19, 18. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, I think he's, he's making a statement trying to get Jesus to do something or say something here. And maybe he anticipates that, that Jesus is going to say something that's going to trap him in his words. But he, listen to how Jesus responds in verse 28. You have answered correctly. Like, bingo, you won. You won the prize. Go, go for it. He says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. You've answered the way you're supposed to answer. You've said exactly the way you're supposed to inherit eternal life. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. Now go do this. And I don't know if Jesus was then like, you know, gesturing like he was going to leave the scene or go away and this lawyer feels like he has to ask another question. So in verse 29 he says this. But talk about the lawyer, but he wanted to justify himself. Now, why did he want to justify himself? Maybe he thought that, maybe he was expecting Jesus to say something that he'd never said, and so he thought, well, do, are these people going to think I'm wrong? Or maybe he thought it was just too open-ended. Like, yeah, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, and that's it? So his lawyer wants to justify himself. This is what he says. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Maybe this was a trap. Maybe the trap was to get Jesus to define neighbor so broadly as to discredit Jesus with, in front of his followers. Maybe Jesus would, 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 would define neighbor as sinners and tax collectors, and many of his followers would say, oh no, they can't be our neighbors. What's interesting is this little Greek word on, which means neighbor, is one who is near. And so it's kind of open for interpretation. When you say one who is near, when you say the word neighbor, are you talking about my family? Are you talking about my next door neighbor? Are you talking about my community? Are you talking about the, 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 the nation that I live in? Are people of color my neighbor? Are Asians my neighbor? You have to understand that, that even though the word literally meant another member of the human race, regardless of race, color, or creed, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had reduced the definition down to people who are like me and who I like. That was the neighbor. So maybe this was a trap. They wanted Jesus to define neighbor in such a broad way that it would discredit him. And so by now, I'm sure these these people that are listening in, Jesus is teaching and there's, this, there's kind of like a debate going on between this lawyer and Jesus and they're all listening in. They're just like pressing in. They want to know the answer. Who is our neighbor? What a relevant question. And so Jesus answers. And this is what he says in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. <laughs> it's like, oh man, are you serious? Come on, Jesus, we asked you a direct question. Just give us a direct answer. Who is my neighbor? Is that, is that black man my neighbor? Is that Asian man my neighbor? Is that white man my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Just give us a direct answer. Instead, you launch into, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a whatever, you know? He starts telling a story. And I think that this story is incredibly pertinent for us today. In the season that we're in, with all of the polarization that exists in our culture, I submit to you that all of the angst and all of the passionate rhetoric and all of the, the tensions that we are feeling today comes from not knowing who is our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus defines that. In verse 30, he says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a very dangerous journey, 17-mile journey, descends 3,000 feet. It's a treacherous road. So it's not unusual that what happened to this man. man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Let's go ahead. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So what happened to this man is not uncommon. This would have happened to anybody oftentimes going there. There's highwaymen who would would attack. And so you get the picture. Jesus is painting a picture that there's a man who is traveling on this road, and he gets robbed, and he's left on the road stripped naked, half dead. And if he wasn't dead already, wild animals would get him at night. Verse 31 a priest, top of the food chain, ceremonially clean, been to the temple. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he, and this is a very important word, saw the man. His eyes, he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, I don't know, I don't know why the priest passed by on the other side. I don't know why he, he wouldn't stop. But there's one thing that we do know. He saw the man. And he came up with a reason why he shouldn't stop. That's what we do know. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was afraid that that what happened to this man would happen to him if he stopped. Maybe he was thinking in his mind. He was theologizing a little bit. He was saying in his mind, maybe this is how God wanted it. Maybe there's a reason why this man is on the side of the road, and this is exactly how God will. Maybe he's done something in life that now God is punishing him. We don't know. We actually cannot get into the mind of the priest of what he was thinking, but what we do know about this story is that he saw the man, and he came up with a reason to go around the man and not help him. It goes on in verse 32. So too, in other words, so you have a priest, and also now you have a Levite passing by this road. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, the same word, saw him, pass by on the other side. Again, we can't know what he was thinking. We don't know why it is that he passed by on the other side. Maybe he was too busy. I mean, after all, he's a businessman. He's a Levite. Levites, you know, they're, they were known. They weren't, they weren't quite the priests. They were a little bit below the priests, but, but wealthy and respected and educated. And so maybe, maybe as they're, as, as, you know, as he's passing by, he's thinking, I don't have time to stop and help this man. We don't know what he was thinking, but what we do know about this man, like the priest, is that he saw the man, 
And he found a reason why not to stop. And then we go to verse 33. But a Samaritan. I love this about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I imagine the people who are listening to him are like, wait a minute, gee, oh, whoa, 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 time out. Stop the story. Why are we talking about a Samaritan right now? I mean, we, we are near Jericho. Samaria is so far away. After all, we hate Samaritans. They're like half-breeds. We call them dogs. They're half Jewish, half, uh, you know, Babylonian and Assyrian. I mean, why are we even talking about Samaritan, a Samaritan in this story? In fact, it was common for, for Jewish people who were traveling north to, to, as they were going through, they knew they would have to go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria because they just didn't want to have any contacts with Samaritans. And so Jesus, in his character, characteristic way, he introduces a Samaritan to, into the story. And the suspense just kicks up. It's like if you were listening to a story, if you were, if you were watching a movie, it would be like the, the soundtrack would go like, dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like it was introducing something. It was, this is, this is a turn. This is a, a plot change. Something's going on here, right? Verse 33 says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and here it is, here's our word again, and when he saw him, he saw him. Remember, I'm asking you to put on some new lens. When he saw him, he took pity on him. A completely different response. You see, the story has taken on this extreme set of circumstances. And instead of this Samaritan going through these mental gyrations and trying to convince himself why he shouldn't stop, I mean, he had all the reason to stop. He's a Samaritan. That likely, the likelihood of that person on the side of the world was a Jewish person. That guy hates me anyways. Why would I help him? Why would I do anything for him? He doesn't do that. He sees the man and he takes pity on him. And we know the rest of the story. Verse 34 <clears throat> says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his, on his donkey. Notice here, there's, a, there's some elements here that are pretty incredible, right? He went to the man and bandaged his wounds. This is a very dangerous thing to do. He's stopping. Maybe there's robbers still lurking. Pouring on oil and wine. This is an expensive thing that he's doing. I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the stuff that they would trade in those days. He pours on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Have you ever tried to pick up a, a lifeless body or a body that's just not helping you? It's hard. It's hard work. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This story takes on this extreme set of circumstances. And Jesus does this masterfully and with intent. The crowd, they're just in pins and needles, just in suspense of what's going to happen next. And we know what happens next. Verse 35, the next day he took out two silver coins. The audience, they're listening to him like, what? Two silver coins? Why? This is a total stranger. Why would he do that for him? Why would he spend money on this person? Takes out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Go on. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any, any extra expense you may have. So this takes on this, this lawyer, just hears this, and he's like, what in the world is going on? How, is this, how does this relate to me? And then he turns to the lawyer in true cross-examination style. Let's go to the next verse. He asked the lawyer, this is Jesus speaking, which of these three 
do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? Which of these three do you think is a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Let me rephrase the question. Which of these three guys acted neighborly? Which of these three loved someone the way they want to be loved? Which of these three actually acted out in a way that they are inheriting the kingdom of God? And so the expert in the law replies, verse 37. Expert in the law replied, the one, and I imagine he was probably like, you know, like looking down and kind of kicking the ground and said, all right, the one who had mercy on him, that guy, yeah. You know, he, he's not happy about it, right? Because Jesus just schooled him. The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Basically repeating what he had said earlier. Do this and you will live. Go and when you come in contact with your neighbor, who may be very different than you, love him or love her the way you want to be loved. And so the moral really of this story that Jesus tells is that being a neighbor is a choice. All three of these men saw him but they made two different decisions. Two decided not to help. One decided to help. It's a choice. See, a true neighbor says, I'm going to leverage my influence, my resources, my time for the benefit of others. And particularly as we see this story, for the benefit of the other, the one who is not like us, the one who's of a different color, of a different economic status, of a different language. A priest and a Levite made a choice to narrow the definition of neighbor. They had so much potential, but they missed the mark. You know that word, missed the mark? As I say the word, missed the mark, that's actually the definition of sin. They sinned. They missed the mark. They had a choice. They could have made the right choice to be a neighbor. Now, as I end today, I, I want to switch metaphors on you. I want to, we've been talking about neighbor, what it looks like to be a neighbor. I've been encouraging you to put on a new set of glasses to, to think about what it means to be a neighbor. But I want to switch to the metaphor of family. In Acts chapter 2, there's this interesting thing that happens. It's the beginning of the church. And at the very beginning, they, there's a very significant experience that happens. They are all baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, you find this. That this mighty rushing wind blows through and, and they're all filled to overflowing and the tongues of fire and they begin to speak in other languages as, as the Holy Spirit was giving them this utterance. That's what it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 4. There's mighty rushing, mighty rushing wind that moves through there. What is clear after this experience is that, that the Holy Spirit filled this community in such a powerful way that they begin to act differently. In fact, look what it says in verse 44 of, of Acts chapter 2. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. I have read this hundreds of times. And hundreds of times I just blow past it or I try to figure out, you know, I try to, I preach sermons out of, of, about community. I preach sermons about small groups from this. I preach sermons about generosity on this. But as I was reading it this past week, I realized the question is, I mean, it just hit me as I saw this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I thought, no, they didn't. They're from different cultures. They spoke different languages. They had different perspectives and different experiences. 
But what we see here is that the Holy Spirit was uniting them, was bringing them together. It was the Holy Spirit that made them a people who were together and having everything in common. There's a African-American leader of the church, Dr. John Perkins. He's a hero of the faith, born in 1930. He's experienced all kinds of, of racism throughout his, his, his life, but he's devoted his life to racial reconciliation. In his book entitled One Blood, this is Dr. Perkins right here, in his book entitled One Blood, he address, addresses racial re- reconciliation. This is what he says. The reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God, that's important for us to understand, apart from God, people apart from God are trying to create unity. We are working at trying to create unity in our own strength. Apart from God, we're trying to create unity. While people under God who who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. So he's talking about these two different dynamics. So the result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. The church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. And I, like, I love the fact that he uses the word family here. We've been made part of the same family. An interesting point to note about family is that you don't have to get family to be family, right? A family is already a family. But sometimes you do have to get family to act like family. And you know this, we all have experienced this, right? Children or parents or brothers or sisters, come on, I'm your brother, I'm your sister, act like that, right? In the family of God, this is done, I love what he, how he brings us to this passage of scripture. In the family of God, this is done through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go. Next verse. A perfect example of spiritual unity came on the day of Pentecost when God's people spoke with other tongues. When the Holy Spirit showed up, people spoke in languages they did not know so that people from a variety of backgrounds could unite under the cross of Jesus Christ. The people who heard the apostles speak on the day of Pentecost were from all over the world, representing at least 16 different geographical areas, racial categories, or ethnic groups. But in spite of the great diversity, they found true oneness, true oneness in the presence of the Holy Spirit. They were family. And this is my prayer for Life Church. And for all of us that are here and for all of you that are listening right now, that we would be so moved by the Holy Spirit in these days of turmoil that, that in the midst of our diversity, that we would find unity. Not uniformity, unity. Because we're from different backgrounds. We're from different places. We've had different experiences. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we, we are family that we would be prompted by the Holy Spirit to tear down those walls of separation, to sit with people who are different from us, whose cultures and experiences we may not fully understand, that we would be willing to cross the line and sit in their homes and have dinner with them, you know, attend their family gatherings, worship shoulder to shoulder, and thus we would fulfill the law of Christ. I said earlier that being a neighbor is a choice, and that's true. You and I, right now, as you're listening to me, you have a choice. 
to be a neighbor the way Jesus defines neighbor, right? But being a family is not a choice. If you're born again from whatever race you might be, you might be coming from, whether you're white, black, Asian, Latino, if you're born again, we are family. We're in this together. We have things in common. And so our problem, problem right now is not that we're not family. Our problem right now is that we're not necessarily acting like family. We need to act like a family. And right now, part of our family is hurting deeply. And when that happens in my family, my personal family, when one of my family members is hurting deeply, my heart goes out to them. I want to leverage my resources. I want to leverage my time, my energy to my family member who is hurting. And that's what I'm actually inviting all of us to be doing right now through prayer, to to start sitting around and listening and praying for them and protecting them. Then and only then can we truly be called the church of Jesus Christ. When we stand up for those who are oppressed and hurt. When we live out this ideal of being a neighbor, of being a family. I want to pray for you. I've chosen to address this today because there's been so much going on in our, in our country. And my heart has been broken over it. And there's a lot of reaction to what's been going on in our country. And people on Facebook and in social media are just beating each other up with different points of view. And I would like to just jump in the middle of all of that and say, listen, let's define this. Who is my neighbor? Who should we be looking out for? Who should we be standing with? And if we can define that, then we can really change this world. Here at Life Church, we say that all the time. We are about changing this world. This is one way we can change this world is by being neighborly. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for everything that you're doing in our lives, for your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness. Father, for your desire for justice. God, we know that right now there is a segment of our family that is hurting deeply. And Father, we pray for them. We pray, God, that justice would come. We pray, God, that they would experience it. But not, Lord, because governments are doing it, not because institutions are making it happen, but, Father, because your Holy Spirit is moving in our midst, because your presence is making it real, because you're changing the hearts, the changing the hearts of white men, changing the hearts of black men, changing the hearts of, of Latino men, of Asian men. God, you're changing our hearts. And so, Father, we repent if our hearts have been hard towards a family member. We repent, Father, if we've been wearing glasses, have been narrowing this view of who my neighbor truly is. We ask, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would invade us and teach us what it means to be a neighbor. In Jesus' name.